Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this and get access to exclusive adventures and exclusive material to help you run your 5e games, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. Links to sign up for Patreon are in the show notes below. We have uh, a lot of interesting topics to talk about today. A lot of spotlights, uh, one pre Preview, lots of different things going on. I typically, I mentioned on, on a previous episode that I don't typically cover a lot of D&D news. It depends on the kinds of news, but I'm interested in it from the point of view of like how it affects DMs more than like watching the whole community. So you're not going to see me talking a lot about D&D TV shows or D&D movies and stuff like that. And if you're interested in that, I highly recommend you check out the Mastering Dungeons podcast. It's also available on YouTube by my friends Teo Sabadia and Sean Merwin. I love their show. I listen to it every week. It's a great way to catch up on the D&D news. I actually review it when I'm getting ready to do this show because I want to know the kind of stuff that they've talked about. And is there anything I want to talk about as well? Or am I going to leave it to them? Because it's very nice. I always look at this as like when I see somebody else doing a great job with something, I'm like, that's great because that means I don't have to do that. That means they've done it. They're doing a wonderful job and I get to sit back and enjoy their stuff rather than feeling like I have to do it myself. There is a big piece of news though that I think is worth talking about. And that is the fact that Chris Cox, who was the former CEO of Wizards of the Coast, has now been promoted to become CEO of Hasbro, the larger company that sits on top. So you have you have Hasbro, you have Wizards of the Coast, and then you have the D&D team, right? You have this sort of three-layer, if we get down to like who's responsible for Wizards of the Coast's part of the D&D, the D&D enterprise, that is, that, that's sort of how that hierarchy works. And Chris... So Chris Cox was the CEO of Wizards of the Coast, and he's been promoted, which is a big deal because it, it, we have definitely seen over the past couple of years how Hasbro has put a lot more attention on Wizards of the Coast and particularly on D&D, as Teos and, and Sean will, as Teos and Sean will describe. For many years, Hasbro never mentioned D&D, barely mentioned Wizards of the Coast at all, but, but D&D never came up. It was not even a line item in their, in their like quarterly reports or quarterly earnings. And now it's like a major piece of their discussion. Like D&D has elevated quite a bit. And this promotion from the, the, from the Wizards of the Coast CEO to the, to the CEO of Hasbro is a, is a big deal. It's a big shift in the executive structure. Do we like him? Yes, I think so. I have, I, I've never heard anything bad. Right. I mean, executives are executives. Right. So I'll, I'll start with that. But I don't I have not heard anything bad. Now, I'm going to add into this that we've seen an exodus of some of the long term employees of Wizards of the Coast, particularly on the D&D team. Rich, Richard Witters just announced on Twitter that he is leaving Wizards, Wizards of the Coast. He was an art director for a long time at and, and, and did a lot of there's a lot of Richard Witters art that you can find in in various books a lot of like the he, he did a lot of the concept art that you'd see adam lee who was on the design team also left and ari marmel who i th i can't remember if he was a, either on the team as a, a as an employee or was a long time was a long time freelancer but also seems to have left wizards of the coast so there's there's been an exodus of long-term people in the on the D, &D team some of the major people that are still there are still there and, and they've hired a lot of new people in. 
And when we talk about, I, the reason why I think this is important is because many times in many conversations I've had across all different platforms on the internet, but particularly in Discord and certainly on Twitter and other places, there's a lot of talk about trying to figure out what Wizards of the Coast is going to do. And particularly with new additions. We do know that there is going to be some new version of the core books coming out in 2024, I think it is. I think it's a couple years away. We know that that's happening. There's lots of speculation about what's going to happen there. Lots of good discussion that I've had with many smart people about what we think that's going to be like. The answer is none of us really know. And the reason we can't know is because it's a small number of people actually working on the books and making decisions about it. And if you think about the coming of fifth edition after fourth edition and, and how that happened, the two-year play test, and you know, there was a huge amount of time where Wizards of the Coast, and I, I don't think it was Chris Cox, it was whoever was the CEO of Wizards of the Coast before Chris Cox. For a, there was they they made it a, they made an agreement early on, right right at the end of fourth edition, beginning of fifth edition, that they were going to let the entire design team work on the fifth edition for two years before making a product, and that's almost unheard of in in any kind of profit seeking enterprise, right? And I remember that I I was in a meeting, I was in a, a like a cocktail thing and i snuck in with my friend jeff griner jeff griner had an actual invite and i pretended to be like his lackey i probably was his lackey and he and i went in and the the, the ceo of wizards of the coast at the time and i can't remember the guy's name but he was there and jeff said like how is it that you are going to spend two years doing a play test for a new version of DD without a single product sold how do you how do you do that and he says we just let magic pay for it and that was his answer, was we're going to let them build a new system. He didn't have a real political answer for it, right? And he, he said, like, we're just going to let Magic pay for it. And that was one dude's decision, right? He just made that decision. He just decided he was going to do that. He felt like D&D. And it was like, well, that's good, because, like, if, you know, he could have just said, nah, we're just going to use it for branding from now on. We don't really care about the RPG, and we're just going to do it for branding. He could have just as easily said that. My point is that when you're trying to predict the future of this, of this hobby, it's all based on a small number of people, some of whom whose name I, I can't even remember, right? And, and you look at the designers and you look at the design team and you, you, you're studying a lot of stuff and we like to do trend analysis. We love to look back over the 40, 50 year history of D&D and say, well, they've come out with new additions every X time and this is what they've done and this is what it's gonna be like. And we love our metaphors. We love to use the past to model the future. And frankly, mod using the past to model the future is about the most accurate way you're gonna do it, which doesn't mean you're accurate at all. So what it ends up meaning is like when we, when we think about how D&D is going to change, and it's always going to change, we can look at the changes like this. This to me are the bellwether. This to me, when you see CEO of Wizards of the Coast, because that means there is no CEO for Wizards of the Coast right now. Well, who's that going to be? And what decisions are they going to make? And is it going to be similar to decisions they said before where they care about it enough to give them two years paying, being paid for by another enterprise to do it? Maybe, maybe not, right? Maybe they say, no, we're going to focus on branding and D&D baloney. That's going to be our new thing, right? So, you know, small number of people making decisions are what affect this. And these, these are signs. To me, these are two signs that things could change. Maybe they don't change. Maybe they all head in the right direction. Everything is great. We don't really know, right? As far as Wizards of the Coast is concerned. Now, the good news is, and I've preached about this on this show before, is that it doesn't really matter that much because people are still playing OD&D. &D. They're playing, you know, we have, we have old school essentials, 
right? We have versions of the game. I have the basic rules. I have the, I bought it just recently, the, the rules encyclopedia for OD&D, right? I have five versions of D&D sitting on my shelves in this room with me right now, and nobody's going to take those away. I can play any version of D&D that I want, including fifth, and including fourth, and including third, and including second, and including first, and OD&D, six versions of D&D, right? So the good news is, they can't do anything to break D&D, really. Like, it, it could be less popular, right? They could end up losing the popularity of D&D. But it's me and my five friends, right? And it's you and your five friends. And it's all the, all of our little groups can do whatever we want. We can play whatever games we want. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about D&D right now, and then I'm going to play a Blades in the Dark game in a few hours, right? And I'm going to play Numenera in a couple of months. So there's so much... You know, there, there's so much range in this hobby. There's so many variants. And like the hobby's going to survive no matter what, right? It's, I, I, it's going to survive longer than we're going to be alive. And frankly, the additions can last. So if I love fifth and I like the way they did it before and I don't like the new one, I'm cool, right? I'm, I'm good with that. We don't have to get too wound up in what goes on inside of Wizards because the, the, the game is robust, really robust, more robust than like any computer game on the planet right? It is really, really strong. And so it's interesting to watch this stuff. I'm always interested to see where things are going to go. My next big question is what is, what are the monsters of the multiverse monsters going to be like, right? This is coming out this month. It's it's soon. I don't even know when, right? But this month they're going to be releasing a new versions of many monsters, hundreds of monsters, 300 monsters, something like that right? Revisions of 300 monsters. I don't expect I'm going to look at them and fall in love, but they're going to be different. They're going to be interesting. And I'm curious, like, are they going to be on D&D Beyond? Are they going to replace the ones that are on D&D Beyond? That's a good question. I don't know. The big big kind of crappy thing is that you have to buy the gift set in order to get the physical book, which kind of sucks. And I'm angry about it, but apparently not so angry that I won't pre-order it because it's got special edition covers and I'm a sucker for special editions. But yeah, like, I'm really curious to see what that monster design is like, because monster design to me is a huge component of like what I pay attention to in D&D, right? I don't pay attention nearly as much to class building, as important as classes are and, cla- and subclasses, the cla- subclass design, as important as that is, it's just not my thing, right? And, but monster design, I'm definitely interested in seeing how monster design works. And I like the new style. I got quibbles. About what, you know, we'll save that when we can actually take a look at some of them. So I thought that that was an interesting, an interesting piece of news. So I have four... Three and a half Kickstarter spotlights. These are Kickstarters that have gotten my attention over the past couple of weeks. We're, we're seeing now that the holidays are over, we're going to see the, the holidays are really the only bad time to launch a Kickstarter, right? Like that from mid-November through, you know, end of December is a really bad time. It's the only bad time for launching a Kickstarter where it's measurable. Like you'll have 20% less people if you back to Kickstarter then. Uh, so we're starting to see new Kickstarters that have kicked up in the, in the beginning of the new year. So we're going to see how that goes. And there are a few of them that got, that got my attention. So one of them is uh, Limitless Heroics. Limitless Heroics is a, an, an approach to bring all different kinds of, of disabilities, neurovi- neurodivergence, mental illness, and other things, ways to have those represented in a 5e game. And the intent of this Kickstarter is to help people see themselves in D&D, which is very important, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a strong believer that everybody should have the opportunity to see themselves represented, how they want to be represented in their fantasy RPGs. And this is a Kickstarter that is definitely heading down, heading down that, that road. Got a little bit of controversy on Twitter when some of the designs came out and people 
read about it. And I think I, I, I think it was a little, the, the criticism was a little disingenuous because while the original poster had good points about like, you know, the design is a little complex or, the, you know, I'm being nice about it, nicer than they were about it, right? The design is complex and how, you know, it doesn't really fit 5e styles and stuff like that. The problem is they didn't mention the name of the Kickstarter. They didn't mention who had designed it. And they made it sound like this was somebody who was like almost making fun of disabilities. And this is the exact opposite, right? That the person who's behind this, I've actually talked to them. I'm there, we, we sit in a TTRPG Discord together. And I know like their heart is, is in the right, you know, Dale, Dale uh, Kreitchley is the, is the creator of this. And their heart is definitely in the right place when it comes to designing this, designing this idea. So it is a, an interesting way to look at representation for disabilities. Yeah, somebody says, disingenuous criticism on Twitter. Say it ain't so. Yeah. But it's unfortunate because like it happened right before the Kickstarter came out. It was really hard, you know, and, and, and hard on Dale. And, and, and I think, you know, there's there's lots of room to talk about it. And, and you know, there's criticism that's going to come from multiple sides in this, which is, you know, I think makes them courageous for, for doing it. Right. Like it's an important thing. And we know it's interesting. We've seen the popularity of of the the combat wheelchair accessory, which you can get for free. Right. And, and that brought a lot of a, a lot of a it brought a big spotlight under the importance of accessibility in D&D. And I think this is really going through, you know, going through and taking a look at it. There are a lot of free samples with this Kickstarter. So you can take a look at the kind of design that's going behind it. There's a lot of interesting stuff. And so if this is the kind of thing that's interesting to you, if it is interesting and important to bring more diversity, more more of a spotlight on on how disabilities can be represented and how they can be approached. And I thought about this, like, how do you how do you have a blind character, right? What if you want a character who's blind and you don't want to say, well, they have disadvantage in everything for the whole game, right? Aren't there ways to kind of deal with that? And so it offers, there's, there's a sample, uh, there are samples for a lot of things about like how to bring blindness in, how to make it so that it still represents blindness, right? And you know, how do you represent that? And how do you make that work so that somebody can have a blind character who still is blind? And you don't just say, well, we're just going to ignore the fact, we're going to ignore all the mechanics and we're just going to say you're blind. But then it's like, well, how does that work exactly? So this one is taking the approach of how to look at it and how to, how to bring that kind of stuff in. So I think it's a very interesting Kickstarter. They have met their funding goal. They're more than twice their funding goal. And, you know, worth taking a look if that kind of thing is, is, is interesting to you. You know, I would take a look at it. So that is the Limitless Heroics Kickstarter. You can find a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes, in the show notes below. Let me paste that to Twitch. I don't know why it always does it. So I, and, and yes, yeah, so there are people, I've, I've seen this where they say, well, I have these disabilities and I don't know how I feel about this. And there's people, you know, I, I, I see people in the Twitch chat right now who are like, I don't, you know, not for me. Right, I get it. The, the, the thing that I think is important about this is at least like somebody's given it a shot. And is it for everybody? No. And is it, you know, it's not changing the game, right? You can decide what you want to bring in and what you don't want to bring in. But I, but I respect them taking a shot at it, right? Because it's something that it's easy to wash away. It's easy to brush under the rug and say, no, we're not going to do anything with this. And then you give it a shot, right? And try it out. So that, that, that is why, you know, that's why I think it is worth a spotlight is because, you know, and same, same with the next one, right? I'm going to talk about the next one too. We're going to talk about, so then the next one is another one that it falls very much in the same boat, which is the adventurer's guide to the Bible, right? This is a Kickstarter that is bringing a fifth edition campaign setting with new rules and options for GMs and full player adventures based on the Bible, right? And there's lots of, you know, boy, you, 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 you know, you want to, you want to see like how people think about it. You can go to Twitter and there's lots of different activities for this. 
so far, everything I've seen, everything I've read shows that they are, you know, they're, they're not being jerks about it, right? They say very clearly, like it is not, this is not our attempt to bring, you know, D&D people into Christianity. But, you know, the, the, the point is that D&D is for everybody, right? And I have pastors who are in my Discord server who talk about it, right? And many people since the beginning of D&D have tried to tie together D&D and religion, right? Actual religion together to use this approach. I have friends who, you know, one of my, one of my favorite stories was from a friend of mine who his mother was kind of concerned about D&D and she went and talked to their, to their uh, religious leader. And I don't remember what, what, what religious leader, uh, what kind of religion. I talked to the religious leader and the religious leader said, well, let me go and just play with them and see what it's like. And I'll get a better understanding and ended up playing like with them forever. And they said, ended up kind of turning into a murder hobo. And they, <laughs> they had to like tone down, tone down the religious leader you know because there's lots of approaches so you know so again this this to me both this one and limitless adventures kind of show how we can take the game independently and expand it in areas that we are interested in and that we think may be interesting for other people am i on it no like this isn't really for me right i'm i'm it, it, this is not you know and and that's fine right? Like, it's okay. I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that they're doing it. I think I wouldn't be putting a spotlight on it if I thought that they were being jerks about it, right? And it's the kind of thing that you could be jerks about this in multiple directions, right? It's very easy to be over, you know, overly, you know, I don't even know what the right word is. Exclusive, exclusion, you know, you can be overly exclusive with this, both in both ways. And so far what I've read they don't seem to be being jerks about it, right? And I think, I think so. Is it for everybody? Clearly not. Are they going to get a lot of attention? Sure. I don't think they're doing it for attention. They seem to be. They seem to be doing it. And of course, the big question is: Does Jesus have a stat block? And the answer is yes. <laughs> and I'm really curious: Is it a commoner stat block? Is it you know? And somebody else is like, well, I think was it Lucifer in I think N World Publishing at Lucifer with a DC 35. So what CR is Jesus, right? And so I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, another Kickstarter that I thought got my attention. I was kind of interested in it. I thought I would, thought I would bring it up. Because I think it's like, I, I have questions when, when Kickstarters come up like this. And like, not every Kickstarter is for me. And it's like, well, it seems interesting enough to talk about, right? And I think the main point when I look at it is I like to look at like the range of what's happening in the hobby. And both of those, both Limitless Heroics and Adventures Guide to the Bible, show how this hobby is expanding in different ways, in different, different avenues. And... I think the main point I want to make, and I, and I see it, right? I see, I see there's lots of, lots of talk on Twitter, right? The main point is that lots of things can happen with this hobby that we individually don't care about, and that's fine. And other people may care about it, and that's fine too, right? So no, none of these things change, change it for us. Just in the same way that I talk about, like, don't let Wizards of the Coast you know, judge your happiness with D&D. &D. Don't let them, don't let them determine your happiness with D&D. &D. None of these things determine your happiness with D&D &D either. You get to decide what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And that, that's why I think it's so powerful, right? So really interesting stuff. A more mainstream Kickstarter spotlight that I'll bring up is Mage Forge. Uh, this is a new Kickstarter done by Nerdarchy, I think. Isn't, isn't it Nerdarchy is doing this one? I believe, yes, Nerdarchy is doing this one. I, I actually just started looking at this today. So I've, I've really, you and I, we're, we're all in the same, the same boat. And it's 250 magic item cards with pictures of the magic items and descriptions on the other side. Outstanding idea, right? I don't, I don't know if they're doing, 
I should probably read this and find out like, are they doing SRD stuff? Are they coming up with their own? How does it work? Very cool. I'm, I'm kind of, the weird bit is when it comes to physical stuff these days, tarot size magic cards. So they're good, good size cards. I'm, I'm holding back now on buying physical stuff because I'm playing so much more online that I, you know, more, I did buy some physical stuff. I bought my, my deck of cards. These are very cool, by the way, from, this is from the index card RPG. These are the cards that have like cool, I'll just do it. I don't know why I'm showing this to someone else's good card. You know, cool pictures of things that you can then drop on the table and use as like a zone in zone-based combat or to just show stuff. I did buy that, but it was like 10 bucks. I think it was like 20 bucks with shipping. So generally speaking though, I'm, I'm buying less physical stuff because I play online so much. So yeah, but clearly there, there's a lot of interest in this kind of thing. And I think this is, you know, there are definitely people who have gone into this area before, but if anybody can do it, Nerdicate can do it. So I, I thought that that was another, another interesting Kickstarter to talk about that was a little less controversial than Limitless Heroics and the Avengers Guide to the Bible. So the other Kickstarter that is getting announced hasn't been, it's been announced, but it's not launched live yet, but it's going to be a big one, is Toma Beast 3. This is the fourth monster book because they did a book called The Creature Codex done by, done by Kobold Press, 281 followers on their, on their follow page. And they, you know, I'm of course going to back it. I love Kobold Press. I love what they're going to do. I, I love what they do. I love what they've done. I actually bought a new bookshelf. I can't show it. But right over here on my right, uh, I bought a new bookshelf and I have all three of my Toma Beasts, my three Cobalt Press monster books are sitting right there along with some other Cobalt Press stuff. So I'm glad I got a new bookshelf so I can put that stuff and have it at hand's reach because I need more shelf space. So I'm definitely on board. I th one thing that I thought was very interesting was the final volume of 5e monsters in the Toma Beast series, right? I thought that was an interesting statement to make. And you can always go back on that and say, no, we changed our minds. It's not the final volume. I don't think I'd ever say the final volume of anything, right? Because we don't know where this is going to go. You know, that we don't, we don't know how that's going to, you know, we don't know how that's going to happen. So I'm not, you know, I, 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 but I thought it was interesting. Does that mean he's moving towards the, whatever the new thing is? Is it because he expects the hobby to change? Why is he saying the, is it because like you just want to have like Toma Beast 4 and Toma Beast 5 and Toma Beast, but I don't know why you wouldn't say we have a dozen different Toma Beast books, each one with 300 monsters and we now have, you know, 12,000 monsters for, for, I don't know why we do it. Sunjammer says meaningless marketing blurb. They could just start another series. Sure. Or they could just say, we change our minds, right? They don't, they don't, they're not legally held to say the final volume. I just thought it was an interesting statement to make. Of course, I'm going to back it because I back everything Cobalt Press does. And when Cobalt Press backs something, I back, I do back the physical version because they, they're physical products are really are really really good i really like them so now we're going to do a spotlight of an actual product this product was mentioned to me when i went onto twitter and asked what people's favorite third-party products were in 2021 came up from a few different people and i said okay well i didn't have a chance to put it on the 2021 list 2021 list because i hadn't read it right? The other ones that were on the 2021 list, which I think you could see was either two shows back. It was either the last show or the show previous. I can't remember. Uh, when I went through the products, the, the notable products of 2021. 
and I did get a chance to look at this and it is really cool. So this is a, this is available on drive-through RPG. So it, they didn't put it under the DMs Guild umbrella. It is a f 15 folk horror encounters for fifth edition. It is available, pay what you want with a suggested price of seven bucks. My recommendation is pay the seven bucks, right? Be a, be a good, be a good citizen and, 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 and pay the seven bucks. It's unfortunate. I did a, I did a, like a little bit of a data study on this back when I was able to pull a lot of data for this. And what I found is when you do, when you do pay what you want, you just, you end up making a lot less, you, you make a lot less paid sales overall period. And that ends up hurting your rankings and a lot of different things. I don't, I don't, you know, put it for cheap if you want, but I don't recommend putting out pay what you want as a, I don't, I don't recommend using pay what you want as a, as a service, because I think it ends up not only hurting your income that you deserve because you made a product and you want people to pay you for the work that you did, but also because it ends up making it harder. As you notice, it didn't meddle, right? There's there, it's, it's not even a copper bestseller, but yet I saw a lot of people talking about it on Twitter. I can't say, because I don't know, I don't have the backend data to say that the reason why they didn't meddle is because it's a pay what you want. But I know that when I looked at the DMs guild, pay what you want products were almost certainly likely to get less views and less sales than other ones, which meant you don't get the same visibility that you would get otherwise. All right. So business part of a side, it is a, it is a cool product. 30, 30 pages, roughly, uh, you know, 30 pages. If you, if you cut out like the OGL and the, and the, the other, the other categories and has some very interesting, you know, cool encounters, you know, lots of different encounters that are all kind of tied to old folklore. I really like the art. I like the, I like the typography a lot. I think it, I think it looks really good from, from the readings that I've given it, it reads well. I didn't see anything that jumped right out at me like, oh, this is terrible. And I, I, I just dig, I dig this style. I think, I think this is a really good, strong kind of independent product. When I think about the kinds of products that people can put out that they can do for reasonable costs and reasonable prices and get in front of people, this is a really good example of the kind of stuff they can do. And a lot of people that I talk to on Twitter, are, you know, a lot, I don't know, it's hard to, hard to, hard to put numbers to it, really liked, really liked what they, really liked what they had here. So yeah, really neat stuff. Look at, I just like, that's cool. Like I love, I like this kind of stuff. You know, a lot of, a lot of neat sort of production on how to do it. And, and boy, when you go, look at that, cool, right? Crazy twisted, the ghostly guide. So neat, neat encounters that you can sort of drop in. I looked at this and immediately thought like this would be a fun thing to mash up with Margaret Tales of the Old Margrave, the, the Cobalt Press book that has like the ancient forest. I really liked the, I liked the setting of Tales of the Old Margrave a lot. And I think that it could be uh, really fun to add in encounters like this. And, and drop it in. So I would suggest taking a look at what, what Crooked Roots 15 Folk Horror Encounters for 5th Edition. You can get it on DriveThruRPG. It's pay what you want, but be a, be, a good, be a good person and drop the seven bucks. It's a reasonable, it's a reasonable price for a cool product that came well recommended on, on Twitter. So, so check it out. Definitely, definitely neat, definitely neat stuff. The Groat Man, right? And the you know, big one was like, what influence? I think they had it at the beginning. Let's find it here. This is a really cool, uh, cool idea. Where is it here? Lots of content warnings, and I'm glad they did it. That's always good to know. Touchstones. I think it's is it touchstones? Yeah. So this is this is like what are the things that help you build the ideas for your adventures, right? And I think it's kind of cool to put these in here. And boy, when I read this list, like some of these I haven't seen, right? I haven't seen Blood on Satan's Claw. I like the title though. 
but I've seen, you know, Wicker Man is fantastic. Blair Witch, of course. The Witch is really great. The Ritual, these, these two, the Green Knight is really great. So, you know, lots of different, I, I really, you know, when, when you can look at it and see where their inspiration came from to design this, that I think is a really cool way for you to get an idea of like, am I on board with what this product is like? It's a, it's a good idea. And I think, I kind of wish I had done it in my books, right? I wish that I had said like, here are some of the influences that, that influenced these books. Like, you know, I have my adventure gloom, which is actually taken right from John Wick, right? So lots of different times where I, I, I wrote an adventure and said, oh yeah, I'm basing it on this, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, of course, right? Or not, you know, I, I did Fistful of Copper, which is obviously a take on Fistful of Dollars. And that's because the plot is exactly from Fistful of Dollars. So neat stuff. So check out What Crooked Roots. Again, you can find a link to the product in the show notes below. I did a YouTube video on the on using the progress progress clocks from blades in the dark in my dnd game and it's it's interesting i've seen you know i, I kind of get this on different videos so what is it a progression clock is essentially a way to have a to have steps of success or failure rather than a single success or failure when you're doing a skill check so the idea is you can take my, my recommendations for doing it and 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 my my criteria for a blades in the dark style progress clock are that you improvise them on the spot. You can use you can improvise them during your game to decide this is a complex activity and it's gonna and it's gonna require so many successes before it works. There are different kinds of clocks. You can use them for detrimental things like the guards are becoming more aware of your presence, or good things like we are discovering more and more information that we need. I recommend tying the steps of the clock, the number of of tick marks in your clock, the number of slices in your clock, should, in my opinion, be based on things that make sense in the world. So if a if there are four locks locking a door, that's a four-step progression clock, as an example. If you need to recover six pieces of information to blackmail the corrupt lord, uh, then those are six things that you do. And what is my third? I thought there was a third thing for making sure that those clocks work well. I, I can't remember. So they're a really good thing. The interesting thing was the number of comments that I had on that video that basically said, well, that's 4E skill challenges. What you're describing are 4E skill challenges. And I have run a tremendous amount of 4E D&D, right? 4E D&D was how Sly Flourish got started. As everyone likes, many, everyone, James Intercastle likes to remind me of this all the time. You know, Sly Flourish, the name comes from a power in 4th edition D&D. I am very familiar with 4th edition D&D. I've designed a lot for it. I wrote for Wizards of the Coast for 4th edition D&D. When it comes to 4E D&D, I know what I'm talking about. I also get some feedback that like, well, you bash 4E. And I'm like, I mean, I loved 4E, right? I loved it way more than third edition, right? Like I played the hell out of it. So there are many aspects of 4E that I adore. Skill challenges were not one of them, right? Skill challenges, like I tried and I have numerous articles on Sly Flourish about how to do skill challenges. And I've recently reread the 4E DMG and the 4E DMG 2 to look at skill challenges and how they're described. And they are not described the same way I just described progression clocks, right? And what I think is a lot of people have their idea of what a 4E skill challenge is in their mind and how they run them and how they use them. And they call them skill challenges, you know? And, and I guess you can call it whatever you want, right? But if that's not a 4E skill challenge. And some of the differences between a 4E skill challenge and Blades of the Dark is one, you don't improvise them. You design them ahead of time like you're designing a combat encounter. That was how 4th edition worked. You designed combat encounters ahead of time, you designed scenes ahead of time, and you designed 
skill challenges ahead of time. You would decide, here's this scene, and during this scene, it's gonna be hard to do some stuff, and you're gonna do it. So one was, they were not improvised. You could improvise them, like you, you could kind of do it, right? But not really, not the way that they were designed in the book, and they weren't, they weren't picked out of the book. Two was, they expected that you took certain approaches, right? And I, I guess that was the third key to, to progress clocks in D&D, or in progress clocks as I described them in, in the video, is that you should be ready to throw it away in a second. Like you, you don't, the, 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 prog the progress clock does not determine how a character succeeds in something. It doesn't determine how they do it. It just says these things need to be done, right? And skill challenges in 4E, particularly early on, and then there's always, always words that they use to say like, well, you can change things as you needed. But generally speaking, they expected certain skills to be used, right? And that certain skills could do certain things a certain number of times. It was very regimented, right? And it was regimented by design because they wanted to make exploration encounters as mechanically tied together as combat encounters. That was the idea. It's like combat works this way. Why can't skills work this way, right? And they don't work that same way. And the problem is, like, you know, and, and, and man, even friends of mine who adore 4E and like skill challenges are like, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. It's like, you'd say like, oh, we're gonna have the raging river skill challenge and you have to go down the river. And the player says, why well, fly, right? And you're like, well, I guess that counts as one success. And you're like, why does it count as one success? I flew over the river, right? Like, I don't, I'm not on the river. Why do I have to do the river skill challenge? And it created a lot of situations like that where the circumstances in the game would sometimes completely invalidate a skill challenge or would radically change how that skill challenge worked. And because you designed it ahead of time and because they were pretty mechanically tied together and they had a lot of stuff going on, it meant that you uh, would have to like suddenly figure out how to fix it, right? So, so I, th you know, my, I'm doing this because I think, you know, and I'm trying to do a single response to many, many comments that I had on this video, which is what I'm describing with progress clocks are not the same as 4E skill challenges. They are not the same thing. And they may be in your mind because the, what you have in your mind about what a skill challenge is, is more like what a progress clock is like. And that's great right? Because you can do those three things. One, improvise them. Two, let them represent what's actually going on in the world, in the situation. And three, be ready to throw them out and let the players take any approach they want in order to succeed, including bypassing the entire clock. And those are things that are not wired into 4E skill challenges. So I don't know. I guess it's a little bit of a rant, right? And again, I'm not bashing 4E, right? I think 4E had a lot going on. 4E had stuff that is better than what is in 5th. And, you know, it's unfortunate that the baby in some cases was thrown out with the bathwater. I don't think skill challenges are one of them. And I know that there's a lot of popularity for skill challenges, right? Which is, I think, why I'm interested in talking about it. But like, man, I did a lot of work with skill challenges. I, I spent a lot of time there. It's not like I don't know what I'm talking about, right? And, you know, before you, you can go see what a skill challenge is like. They have them available on Wizards of the Coast website. So you can see what they were, what they read like, like conversation skill challenges. And I think to me, I changed a lot when I went from 4E to 5E and, and over the course of me running 5E. And now like, I don't need a skill challenge to handle a conversation with a Lord. I can fail forward. I, I can improvise that. And I think it's far more useful to like get in the mind to do two things, right? Get in the mind of the NPC when you're having the conversation and don't let one check fail completely, right? And as long as you're thinking about that, you're, you're in, you're, you have a lot of flexibility that you can bring to your game, which is flexibility that things like, like skill challenges didn't have. So that's my discussion of blades and blades and blades style progress clocks. Let's talk about some 
patron questions. These are questions that were that were posted to the January Sly Flourish Patreon Q&A thread. So if you want to get questions like this added to your, if you wanted to add a question to something like this, you could do so by becoming a patron and looking for the January Q&A thread and posting a question there. I got lots, I got lots and lots of questions, 40 questions, I think. So this is the beginning. These are the first questions of 2022. So uh, uh, very, very good. Very, very excited about this. First question in 2022. Michael says, I am running two Eberron campaigns that are both climbing to high levels, and it's my first time running level 14 plus encounters. Oof. Any high, t high level tips to keep combat social encounters fun and interesting so that not everything is auto-passed between flash of genius, guidance, and other character optimizations. I want to reinforce that these characters make good choices and are high level so that they are better within the world, but don't want everything to become trivial because of it. So yeah, that is a, that is a hard question. The number one thing that, and, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna attack this question from a different angle, which is the first thing to make sure of is that the scope and the scale of the story fits the level of the characters, right? That, that that should be the number one thing is you wanna make sure that the kinds of challenges that they're facing, regardless of mechanics, the kinds of challenges that you're facing, I get, yeah, Mike discipline is hard. I get, I get fired up, I get excited, and then I get louder. Hopefully it didn't clip too much. We'll find out when I'm doing this in post. So start with, start with making sure that the kinds of challenges that they're facing are appropriate for the level, for their level, right? They should be facing major challenges. And in Eberron, that's a little hard because Eberron is really, I, th I think it's strongest in tier one and two, sort of first, first to 10th level because it is very kind of local, regional and world. And there's there's not a lot of like world threats in Eberron, like because everything is so regiment, re regional, you can have big regional threats, but but they're, the world threats are harder to come by. You can do them because you have the Dalekers and you have some stuff like that. So you can do it in, in Eberron, right? And, but you're gonna be radically changing like the face of Eberron when you get into those kinds of challenges, right? And, and the planes are sort of a weird thing. And in, in, a, in a, what I will refer to as a traditional D&D game, a sort of more Greyhawk, Forgotten Realm style D&D game, the outer planes becomes your way of really tapping into those tier three, tier four areas, right? Traveling other worlds. And in Eberron, they have other worlds and you can do it, but like they're not very well spelled out, not nearly as much as like the political issues going on in Sharn. So that's number one is making sure that the kinds of threats that they're facing are appropriate, that they, they should be facing, they should be dealing with challenges that are appropriate for their high level when they get to that. But you're actually asking mostly about like, well, how do you do a skill check when it's not, you know, if you do a DC 20 skill check. And part of it is like, you gotta recognize there's certain things that they're just going to be able to do now that they never even need to do a check for anymore, right? And if you've got a rogue who's been putting a lot of stuff in, the fact that they're gonna get a 35 on their stealth check, you're gonna have to go with like, they can just sneak. Like they're really hitting that super heroic, they're hitting super heroic levels, right? And when they hit super heroic levels, they, it's okay for them to just bypass a lot of stuff. And that means the kinds of challenges that they're gonna face, you know, have to be a lot higher. I think it's just generally, if they're gonna roll the kind of skill check where they can use flash of genius and guidance and, and their expertise and other things, I think it's okay to just kind of you know, you let them roll, let them roll their 35. And 
you know, it, it means, and, and can you up the DCs? Sure, right? You can say like, look, this is a door built by the, the orc gatekeepers and they didn't want the Dalekers to get through it, which means you can't just go up and pick it, right? You can't just go, this, this but if you, if you have like a mixture of mechanical blocks and arcane blocks and two characters both have to like channel their energy to do both of these, it can have a DC of 30, right? You can go ahead and bump the DCs way up. And, and make it hard. But the main thing is, and, and I'm just, I'm banging on this thing. I just was talking about it with the things. Start with the story, right? What's the story? Why is the challenge of this challenging for people who are that powerful? And there are definitely opportunities where those challenges exist, but mainly it's about thinking about in the story, why does it make sense that this would be challenging? If it doesn't make sense that it's challenging in the story, then they just do it. Like convincing people of stuff, they're level 15. They've, they've got glowy lights around them. They just, when they walk into town, everybody knows who they are. They don't need to make charisma checks, right? So I, I think that that's part of it. But I, I get you, you know, if it's, it's a shift in how we think about our game because the way that skill checks work. It's the same kind of thing of like, you don't worry about encumbrance after a certain amount or whether they can find food and water, right? Once they reach certain levels, you don't longer worry about whether or not they're gonna be okay because they're like raising themselves from the dead all the time. What do they care about whether or not they have rations, right? So we kind of no longer worry about the rations. In the same way, we don't worry about trivial skill challenges or ugh, we don't worry about s trivial skill checks. We worry only about really important skill checks because they're really important people. They're really important characters. I hope, Michael, I hope that answers your question. I know you probably want a little bit more in the crunchy mechanic side other than just keep up in the DC. When is reasonable? Don't up the DC. This is my, I think one of the other questions talks about this. Don't up the DC just to make it hard. Only up the DC if the world, if it makes sense for the world, right? Why is that door DC 30? It better because the gatekeepers did it to keep Dalekers out, not because a king didn't want you to get into his vault, right? DC, you know, so, so, so there. Steve L says, any chance on getting your work on Roll20? Are you working on any more adventures to post online or in a book, etc.? So there, why, this is, this is gets to a larger question of how come you can't find like Ruins of the Grendel Root or Fantastic Lairs or Fantastic Adventures as modules that you can buy on Roll20? And the reason why is time and effort and money. To the, 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 all of these things take a fair bit of time for a relatively narrow audience. One thing I, I try to do and, and so far have done and plan to do with like the Lazy DMs Companion and stuff like this is making sure that all of the maps and everything that you have in there, you can use in any VTT of your choice. So you can definitely, I think pretty easily and, and I use a lot of SRD monsters, right? I use a lot of monsters from the, the that you can the, from the open game license. So if you have like the monster manual on Roll Twenty and you have my maps, you can pretty easily put together like Ruins of the Grendel Root in Roll Twenty. It's not as nice as a full package where you go there and you buy it and all the lighting is set up and everything like that. And there's a few reasons. One is I, I'm one guy. Right, and the Sly Flourish Empire is one person with a lot of help from a lot of other people, but I don't have a staff and I don't have things that I can just offsort. And even when I, you know, I'm like, sure, but why don't you just hire somebody? But when you hire somebody, I still have to manage that, right? Every freelancer that I've hired to do something, I have to manage it and I have to make sure the quality is good and I have to make sure quality control is good and I have to do customer service on it. There's a lot of stuff that happens that I'm always, it's always gonna come back to me, right? And I don't have the time. I'm either doing that, I'm either making new books or I'm doing stuff like that. I can't really, I don't really have the bandwidth to do both. And sure, that's great for Roll20. What about Fantasy Grounds, right? What about Foundry? 
right? And now do I have three new ones? Like both those are all really popular. And I guarantee you, as eager as you are to have it on Roll20, other people are eager to have it on Fantasy Grounds or Foundry, right? And I've had people come to me. It's like, I'll just do it. You know, hell, I'll do it for free or I'll do it for a commission. I get it. But like, it's still my stuff. And if it goes up there, it's still my responsibility if something's not right or it doesn't work right or it needs to be updated or something like that. It is really, really, it's really, really hard to do. So I, I'm instead trying to make sure that the books are as available to the most people as possible, which is, you know, PDF, physical with digital maps that you can then import into your tabletop of choice. Another thing is I don't use the other ones. I don't use Foundry. I don't use Fantasy Grounds and I don't use Roll20. I use Albert, and Albert doesn't have modules, but I probably wouldn't do it for that anyway. There are actually a couple of VTTs where some of the stuff is available. I think there's a few adventures available for like the astral tabletop and stuff like that. And that was because they said like, look, you just, just hand us this stuff and we'll do everything for you. And I was like, all right, I'll try it out. Right. But it is really, it's, it's really hard to do. And so the, the answer is, I, you know, I don't have the bandwidth. And if you think it's easy, trust me, it's not as easy as you think it is. Right. So that's, that's the question. That's why it's not there. And I get it. People want it. I, I know they're eager. And, and if I had a bigger enterprise and I had people that could do it, uh, that'd be great. But like I talked about it with Scott and, and James, right? And we all agree. There was three of us and we all talked about it. And I was like, it's really hard, right? Like James has done it. James, James Castle has made many modules. He took Wizards of the Coast stuff and made it available on Roll20. He knows what he's doing and he knows the cost. And even for him to be able to do it, he's just like, it's this or I'm doing other work, right? And do we know that we're going to be able to make a return on it? And is, is the return even worth it? If it's not significant, but we still have to do customer service forever, is that, a, is that worth it? And, and our end of the answer, we don't even know because we haven't really done it. Maybe one day, but you know, I don't, I don't have anything, I don't have any plans on any schedule. Joe M, when do you like to give out, I talked about this, when do you like to give out a one-page campaign guide to your players? The short answer is one to two days before we're gonna sit down at a session zero, right? I talked about this yesterday. Yesterday I did a hour and a half uh, Twitch stream, it'll be available on Tuesday, talking about Wild Beyond the Witchlight, my session zero for Wild Beyond the Witchlight. And I described it there too, which is you want to be really careful about when you hand out your one page campaign guide. If you hand it out too early, your players are going to build characters on their own, or at least have characters in their minds that they're fully fleshed out and ready to go. If you don't give it out early enough, they won't read it. So to me, the answer is probably a day before, right? Like one to two days before you're going to have your session zero with a very big disclaimer, don't make characters yet. We're going to do it during the session. If you're doing it the way I do it, right? Like, you know, different people do it different ways. But I, I like to do it one to two days before, which is enough time that they'll read it, but not enough time for them to think up a character. And it's really hard to do. And they, they generally do it anyway. All right, try not to think too hard about your character because we want the characters to be built together during the session zero. You want them to read it, but not act upon it, right? So one, my, the answer to your question is one to two days. That's, that's what works for me. And again, how everyone else runs their session zeros can vary very much between DM to DM. And, you know, wh how, how you want to handle that, right? Whether you, maybe you want people to come with characters ready to go, that's up to you. So it depends on your style of your session zero. For me, one to two days is about right. And even that's not perfect, right? It's really, really hard, really hard to do perfectly. Lawrence H., says, what, if any, start of game rituals do you have to help the players settle into a gaming space and get ready for the adventure new? What, if any, end of game rituals do you have? How do you reflect on just the finished session and look ahead? That's like seven questions, Lawrence. That's not one question. My start of game ritual I describe, and it is in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, and I think you probably heard it, and I'm sorry that you've heard it before, and you, know, you, you may want more. 
is who wants to describe what happened in the last session's game, right? I say it just like that. And we go about, honestly, that hasn't been working tremendously well, particularly online. I get a lot of dead air. So I'm probably going to start classic Lawrence. <laughs> I'm probably going to change that a little bit and give a little bit of primer. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do with that, but I, I'm probably going to start priming that pump a little bit beforehand with last week on, you know, last week in our series, this, these kinds of things happen. Who wants to fill in some blanks, something to get them started, get them excited, get them started so that they remember. So I'm not, they're not just like, you know, who wants to describe what happened last session's game though? You know, and I get dead air and just, it's such a drag in the first thing. It's not a great way to bring people in. End of game ritual is, and that's where we'll end today's adventure. I, I just like to say that. It's like me, and I clap my hands like I'm closing the book, right? That's where we end today's adventure. I often end at a cliffhanger and I say, that's where we end today's adventure. And I get people that go, ah, oh, and it's great. And it feels like critical role. Like you see that in critical role, right? When they end the session, everybody goes, ah, oh, and I get that feeling, right? So I'm, I feel like that is a much better ritual at the end of the session than the, who wants to describe what happened in the last session's game works in the, at the beginning. How do I reflect on a finished session? I, I don't. You know, and I'm not saying it's good or bad. It would be really great to sit down and spend 10 minutes writing up some notes and capturing some stuff that needs to be captured and making sure my notes are good. I suck. Usually I'm very busy and, or I'm going to bed, right? And so I just like, yep, we're done. And then I'm, I'm out, right? And, and then I worry about it and I think about it when I'm getting ready to do my next session. The only other ritual I have is the eight steps, right? When I'm doing my prep for my game, I like to sit down with the eight steps and go through them. And that's a ritual, right? And part of that is because the steps to me have been very useful. Part of it is because it's a nice fixed thing that I can do. I can do it just about anywhere. And it helps me feel like I'm well prepared for my game. So those are really the, the answers there. Do you have any advice for constructing complicated political intrigue for a lazy dungeon master? Yes. Most important is to, this is from Leon P. Most important is to get into the heads of the players, get in the heads of the characters, the NPCs that are involved in this complicated intrigue, right? Who are they? What do they want? What steps are they taking to get there? This is right out of the idea of like villains and fronts, right? And, and I call them fronts in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. I got that from, from Dungeon World and from Apocalypse World. And, but I'm starting to just call them villains, but you can call them whatever you want, right? And if you're gonna have this, you might you, you know decide who the players are in this political intrigue, right? In this bit of political intrigue, who are the players, right? Who are the main drivers? Who are they? What do they want? And what steps are they taking to get there, right? which is really just, you know, perfect for any villains, right? The more of them you have, the more complicated they are. Are they intertwined, right? You know, do they have heralds? Do they have people like lackeys and toadies? And what do they want? Maybe they want different things. Start with the NPCs, drive it from the NPCs and sort of intertwine it there. And, and, that, and then be ready to jump into their heads, right? When you're running the intrigue, jump into their heads and say, this event just happened. How would this character react to it? What would, what would they do that's different, right? How would they shift and change? And again, you're doing it all inside the fiction, right? And then if you need a mechanic to tie around, I just was talking about progress clocks is a great way to say like, anytime there's some political intrigue of like faction growth or anything else, think about like, what those steps look like in the world and then drop yourself a little, it's gonna take eight of these to go and watch them progress. You know, watch, the watch these steps progress, right? But getting your heads into the NPCs, I think is the best way to do it. And this is true regardless of political 
you know, complicated political intrigue is you know, don't try. I, I, my, I would, I don't know how useful a flow chart is. Right. And I think that the, the reflex is to build like a mind map or a flow chart that kind of draws the interconnections. And at that point, you're starting to try to predict the future and you don't know what the players are going to bring. So it's better to understand your NPCs really well and how they'll react, what they want and, and get, and be prepared for them to react and then watch how things progress in the game and move that way and keep track of it, right? You can keep notes for the NPCs. So, so I think that that's how I would approach it. One thing to keep in mind with every question and every answer that I'm giving, the big disclaimer is this is my experience with it, right? And there are many experiences where many, many DMs, many of you are DMs, probably almost all of you are DMs, right? And you all have your experiences too. Mine are not any better or worse than yours, right? So I am answering the questions because I'm sitting here, right? But I am not saying this is the way it is, right? And your experiences aren't as important as mine because your Twitter follower count compared to mine. That's a bunch of horseshit, right? We are all DMs. We all have many experiences. Many of us have many years of experience. Many of us have had lots of experiences even with the few years that we've been playing. And so we all have different views on this. So this is not my way or the highway kind of kind of thinking here. Just want to make sure that's clear. Sometimes I'm very declarative in how I say things. I try not to be, but sometimes I'm very declarative and I don't believe it, right? I change my mind all the time. So Andrew A says, thinking about shorter projects maxing out at five-ish pages, what do you think are the most useful 5e products that you see out there in the community at present? So Andrew A's larger question, I, I abbreviated his question for time and was like, you know, if you're, if you're getting involved in starting to publish some material and I had mentioned before on, on my, my show on how to make it in the industry, you can see you can find that video. I mentioned that shorter products are probably a better way to get started. And I, I agree with that. So his question is, or their question, Andrew's question is, what do you think, what makes for a good short product? And I mentioned it before, I think he even said like, besides encounters, but I'm going to say encounters, right? Small adventures, small locations, small encounters are really good. Probably NPCs would be good. One of the things I did for, for Matt Colville for MCDM was uh, the, the Grim Accord, a group of NPCs, right? I, I wanted to have sort of like a cool group of NPCs you could drop into your game that could be villains, they could be rivals, they could be quest NPCs. You could use them in lots of different ways. I thought that that was pretty useful. Monsters aren't bad. If you have a pretty interesting thematic monster, I think that that can be a way to go. You can do class stuff and other people do class stuff. The reality is though, I just don't think you're going to get a lot of use out of it. Right? I don't think, I don't think people are going to get a lot of use. I don't class. There's lots of third party class material. And I bet it's used very, even I bet the most popular third party class material, like the gunslinger from Matt, from Matt Colville and the you know, the, 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 the two, the Illrigger and the Beastmaster from MCDM. Those are like the biggest third-party class things that are probably exist. And I bet they are used in less than 10% of games. I'd be surprised if it's that many, right? I don't have any data to back that up, but I, I bet you would be surprisingly few, right? DM stuff, however, is a lot easier. When you, when you make stuff for DMs, it's easier because they could just try it and throw it away, right? They can say like, oh, a monster. Cool, let me try the monster out. Hey, that worked, I like it, right? Or, no, oh, that didn't work, I'm not gonna use it again. And it's very, you, you, the, the friction to bring in new stuff for a DM is a lot easier. I'm trying to figure out that metaphor. It's a lot smoother to bring something in that you give to a DM than it is to bring something in that you could give to a player. Because once you give it to a player, they have it forever, right? the blood hunter, right? So I, I, I would aim towards making stuff for DMs, 
right? And then I would really, the big thing I would do is put yourself in the mind of DMs and say, how are you making their lives easier? I try to do this all the time. I think about this all the time. How is the thing that I make? Is this a vanity project that I'm working on? Is this something I'm making because I like it? Or am I really trying to make something that other DMs are gonna wanna use and that makes their lives better, right? And sometimes it's a little bit of both, right? Especially when you like writing adventures and stuff, it's like, well, of course, these are things I think are cool, but I also wanna make it useful, right? So types of products, I would say encounters, like we were just looking at what crooked, you know, the, 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 the what, quick, what crooked roots, good example, relatively short product, right? You know, 30 pages, so a little bit bigger than, than, than five, right? but a bunch of encounters, right? Two page encounters that you can drop into your game. I've talked about the Waterdeep uh, City Encounters book. I think it's fantastic. And I would, I, would, I would look at something like that. So yeah, I would, you know, encounters are good. Locations like dungeon, just interesting locations that players might run into, the characters might run into. And you can use like Dyson maps for free. You know, he has a bunch of commercially available maps that you can drop in. I think that would be a really good thing. So I would check out stuff like that. If you want to see the kind of stuff I think is really useful for short, my, the stuff I'm doing for Patreon, I think falls into that. One page, two page, four page kind of products that I think are trying to, I'm trying to put out there to make it useful for DMs. So yeah, that, that's, uh, and you are a patron, Andrew. So take, you, can, you know exactly what I'm thinking because you are seeing the stuff that I'm making. Step Back says, how can you start playing RPGs with children? And if you have any suggestions, vis-a-vis a system or how to approach it, Two, ah, he has two. That's why he's got two questions. He's stuck two questions in one thing. Oh, step back. You're, 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 you're good people, so we'll answer your two questions. RPG Kids is a RPG written by my friend Enrique Bertrand. It, he has refined it a lot, and I would recommend taking a look at that. I have run D&D games for, for children as young as four and had fun with it. I'm not, I, I don't have kids and I don't spend a lot of time with kids. So I'm not a great person to answer this question. The other one is No Thank You Evil. No Thank You Evil is a uh, RPG put out by Monty Cook Games. Well-regarded, I've had friends of mine who have played it with their kids and enjoyed it. It is definitely aims low. It, it aims at, 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 at young children, right? Once they get into their eight, nine, you're ready for other things. And I would say you probably do a little bit of D&D once you get to that like seven, eight, nine. But I used uh, Fate Accelerated before when I ran a game for two, uh, a friend of mine and his two children, and they were like four and six. They were pretty young. And we played we played using Fate Accelerated, and that worked really well. The pluses and adding up pluses and minuses worked really well for them. That was easy for them to do. And the other thing is I used lots of tabletop accessories. I used a big Dwarven Forge setup. We had miniatures, and they loved that part of it. They Kids love the tactile. You know, they love the tactile stuff. They want to they play with toys. And who am I to say, don't play with toys. Nicole in chat brings up Honey Heist. And Honey Heist is a fantastic RPG. You should definitely check it out. Honey Heist is a one page. I will link to it in the show notes below. Fantastic one page RPG, fun for everybody. And apparently fun for kids. I've never used it with kids, but that, that is an approach. Two, you've been trying to revisit Hamlet's hit points for advice on getting it into better pacing. My problem is that I'm often far too easy going to allow for enough downbeats. Any advice for internalizing and exercising Hamlet's hit points? Yes. I think it's useful when you have a location, when you have a game, if you're thinking about the upward and downward beats, if you don't think you're gonna be able to improvise them really easily, make a list, right? Make a list of 10 upward beats and 10 downward beats that might occur in this next game. It's not a new step. It's not a ninth step for return. You don't have to do it. But if you're thinking about the beats and you think it will be useful, 
the, the making a list of 10 things I find to be just incredibly invaluable when I'm, when I'm, when I'm doing my, when I'm doing my games and I really, I really like doing it. And it's, it could be 10 weird locations. It could be 10 strange items, 10, 10 of anything, right? 10 is a good amount. 10 makes you think it's enough that you've got a good variety, but it's not so much that you're going to spend hours and hours on it. So what are the, what are, you know, this is one of like prepare to improvise, right? And when you make your list of 10 potential downward beats for the next game that you're running, that gets your head around what you're going to drop in. So that's that's probably my best my best advice for trying to think about how to how to put downward beats. If you don't if you can't think about usually it's the opposite. Usually it's like upward beats are hard to come up with. Downward beats like combat, right? Like you're fighting a fighting a hard battle is a downward beat or getting hit by a trap. There's so many different like D&D tropes that are downward beats. It's sometimes hard to do the opposite. One last question and then we will be done for the day. Ted H. Any tips on running with less than four players? I'm running Ghost of Saltmarsh with two experienced players and one who's never played in an RPG before. So that's three players. Yes. So there's a few ways. One is you can take a look at the one-on-one. I have some guidelines for combat encounters for one-on-one, and you can think about those in, in scaling. A lot of it is just reduce the number of combatants that they're going to have. Ghost of Saltmarsh in particular, like when you get to the Sahuigan, when you get to Final Enemy, there's like room after room after room with piles of Sahuigan in it. It's a lot easier to just reduce the number of monsters proportionally to the number of players. The other one is you could give one of them, if, you, if it fits and if they would want to, give one of them a sidekick. You could have like an animal companion sidekick and you could use the rules from Tasha's. That kicks them up to four and that means that they are about on par, Right. You could have another sidekick. You could have a, an NPC that they control or something like that. If you wanted to get it to, so that they, because it sounds like you've got three players, right? And then three is pretty close. And so probably you just, the main thing is you just want to watch the action economy, right? And, and if you're running a published adventure, keep in mind that they were expecting four characters and you probably want to, if you probably want to drop the number of monsters. The other one is if you're running like a legendary or a big, if there's like one big powerful monster, be prepared to drop its hit points a little bit and be prepared to drop the amount of damage or the number of attacks that it does. For legendary monsters, remove a legendary action for every player before lower than four, right? Likewise, you can increase the number of legendary actions by every character above four. It's not really to spec, but it will make legendary monsters hold their own more against groups of five or six characters, which normally they wouldn't be able to do. Better is add more monsters. So the add monsters to subtract monsters is the best, it's probably the biggest dial you can turn to tune encounters around your characters. And the, 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 the lazy encounter benchmark still works. If you have three players, you can still use the lazy encounter benchmark to figure out like, what are the total number of CRs that I should have in here? Just keep in mind that like an interesting bit of mathematics when it comes to the number of characters is that there's a synergy level that is greater than the sum of its parts or less than the less than the subtraction of its parts, right? That for every character above four, the total power of the group goes up more than just the 20% of adding the other character. Likewise, the synergy of three characters is less because it's like healing. If one character has to heal, that's a lot of stuff taken, right? That's a lot of actions taken to just do healing. It's a lot more likely for a TPK because it's, you know, three people are down. That's a lot easier to knock three people out than five, right? So there's a synergy that comes with numbers of characters. I think it's like a triangular equation, right? Essentially like, you know, adding a fifth character is doing more than just 
adding that amount. It's 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 greater. The, the total power of the group is greater than the amount of the added character. Likewise, the reduction in power of a group is greater than the subtraction of just one character. I'm not, I'm not saying that exactly right, but I hope you get my point. My point is that they're even less efficient than you would think with the removal of one. And you have to account for that. And the easiest way to account for that is turn the, turn the dial for the other group too, so that they have fewer monsters on their side. That is it for today's show. I want to thank everybody for coming today. It's always a great pleasure to have people hanging out with me, chatting about D&D. It's a, it's a real highlight of my week. I really love doing it. So I want to thank everybody for coming. If you enjoyed this video, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, subscribing to my videos on YouTube, or picking up any of my books. See you next week. Have a great week and get out there and play some D&D.